You know what this is? This is choices. Choices. I, I hate choices. Ilona, my wife, oh, 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 she, she loves choices. Guys, we just painted our kitchen. Did, did you ever paint your kitchen? Were you ever forced to choose the colors? You didn't choose the colors. You just gave your input, and then there were other ideas that came in, and it didn't end up with your color after all, did it? Do you know how many shades of gray there are? I mean, more than you can count, and they're all here. And you can go back and forth between one and another. Choices. Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't ruin your marriage. You'll kick the dog. You'll talk to yourself. You just, just say, no, no. You choose it, I'll paint it. That's all. In fact, you get so, uh, confession, I get so confused with the colors, I just say, whatever. You know, whatever. Whatever you want. Good by me. Whatever. Whatever is what I say when I have too many choices. And I have too many choices. So do you. In almost every area of life, I've got all kinds of choices, and I have to choose those choices. And I get confused, and I don't know what to do first. And so sometimes, sometimes I feel like when I preach, and this is happening today, I need to talk about things that matter, because we've all got choices. And we've got choices in every area of life. And you know as well as I do that we can't fulfill all the choices. We just can't do it. That's not the way it works, because i only got so much energy. I've got so much time. I've got so much money. I've got so much talent. I mean... I just can't do everything, and so I have to choose. And I have to choose based on things that really matter. So every once in a while, I talk about the subject of things that really matter, and I want to pick out a whole bunch of them as I go along, and not here at Renaissance, but but in the church that I've been preaching at up in Morristown. And this morning, I want to choose one of those, okay? I want to choose one that is really a primary value for me and one of the choices that I've had to make a long time ago and have lived my life trying to make in a consistent manner. And I know a lot of you have too, so, so I'll just be saying things that you'll say, yeah, that's right, I need to do that. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Church matters. Church matters. And when I say church, I mean local church, church like Renaissance or Millington Baptist, where I came from before, or or New Providence Press, or wherever, wherever your home church is. And you may be from another state, you may be from another church, and that's, that's fine. Just, just translate what I'm saying into your church, because church matters. Church matters. Now, I know that that's not a very popular theme today. I understand that. I, I know that we have a, uh, a whole new culture in which organizations are automatically doubted, and I'm going to stand alone, or I'm going to stand alone with a few friends and my family, and that's it, and I'm not going to get involved and committed to any one organization, and that goes for my corporation as well as for my church, but uh, that's a value you have to resist. George Barna, uh, Christian Polster, uh, did a book, 2007 I think it was, and in the book he talked about the leading edge of a revolution, 20 million people who live a first century lifestyle based on faith, goodness, love, generosity, kindness, and simplicity, who zealously pursue an intimate relationship with God, and now I add what he was really saying, but they attend no particular church, or they attend a lot of churches, and they go from one church to another, and they never really stop long enough to invest in any one church. You ever see hummingbirds? Sure, you've seen hummingbirds. I 
They're beautiful. They're fascinating. They can stop in one place, but they don't stay in one place. They go from blossom to blossom to blossom to blossom, and they never stop in one of those to do anything for that blossom. They simply take what they can get. Ah, that's what I'm talking about, hummingbirds in the Christian world. I may step on your toes, forgive me, but I can't see you very well, so I don't feel like I'm offending anybody here. Everybody's agreeing with me, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hummingbirds. I want to talk about... uh, the reality of what the New Testament teaches, and the Old Testament for that matter, and the reality is that we are called to grow in our relationship with God in the midst of community. Community, and that's another way of talking about the local church. Community, that's what we're supposed to be in whatever church that you're a part of. Community, we're called to grow in the midst of community. And I take that from many places, but especially from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bible or your phone and you have your Bible there, you may want to turn to it because I'll go back to some of those passages as well as we go along. Paul is writing to the churches in the area of Ephesus, and he's writing in a general kind of letter, but that general letter is to be read in each of the locations where there's a church, uh, people committed to Jesus Christ to walk together in faith uh, with him. So here he is speaking to them. He says, Therefore remember that you formerly, uh, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. I did something this morning during my quiet time. It's really fascinating. I urge you to do it. I personalized these words and I said, I am, I am distant, I am far away. Try that next time you read it, or even as I read it to you. Remember that that time you were separate from Christ, or I was separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, I who was once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Read it that way sometime. It makes a world of difference. It was impressive to me this morning. For he himself is my peace, our peace, who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace between the two, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we have Both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, that's kind of complex. I understand that. Uh, Let me put it down in words that I can make as brief as I possibly can, and that is simply that he has brought us together. You look around you, and you see other Christians over on that side or that side. He has brought us together here at Renaissance or at the church that you're normally a part of. He has brought us together. And what Paul wants to say is he has brought us together from a natural state of being very, very far apart. And the illustration he gives of that is of the Jews and the Gentiles and the distance between those two groups of people in the first century. Now you can think in terms of that in a lesser sense, people sitting in this room, I suppose. 
But in reality, there are divisions between people that are very similar to the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, it was extreme. I mean, it, it was far as you could possibly get. And you can see some of that as you catch some of the words that Paul uses to describe me, Gentile, you, Gentile, or whatever you happen to be outside of Christ. He says you were uncircumcised, separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God. And the sad part is that was true. (laughs) That's the sad part. They were. They were all those things. They were excluded. They were foreigners. They were without hope. Because, listen, let's go back in history. God had called the Jews as a people to gather together, not because he didn't care about the other peoples of the world, but he called the Jews to form a people unto himself so that they could be the avenue through which he would reach out to the other people in the world around them. That was his intention. The covenant with Abraham was given to us the first time in Genesis chapter 12, and then it's repeated several times. But always the idea is that they are going to be the people through whom God is going to reach out and bless the world. And when you see the genealogies in the, in the beginning of the Gospels, what you'll find is that the writer is going all the way back as far as he possibly can to say, okay, we're coming from here where God gave his promise, and then we're going all the way down through here, and here's Jesus, and that's how I'm going to bless the, bless the world. That's the picture of the genealogies that we get in the New Testament. His intent was to reach out to people who are lost, and he was going to do that through a certain group of people, and they would be blessed as a result of that. As time went on, he gave them the law of Moses. And you know the law of Moses? He gave them the law of Moses because he wanted to form them as a nation. They could best survive as a nation and then pass on the legacy of what he had given to them, and ultimately Jesus would be born into that nation, and he was in the first century. He gave them the law of Moses so they'd know how to live. Now, the problem was he knew that they weren't going to do it all the time, and so he also gave them the path to pardon. And the sacrificial system of the Older Testament is the path to pardon. You come and you bring your animal or you bring something else and you you sacrifice it before God. And that is a picture of your sacrifice of yourself in acceptance of what God has to offer. So he gives them the way to walk, but he also gives them the way to get back to where they're supposed to walk when they didn't walk in that direction. And what we have here is the path to pardon that is open to the Gentiles in the first century and every century before that, but seldom taken by the Gentiles for a lot of different reasons. And what you end up is is division between these two groups of people, Gentiles, Jews, always divided and fighting against each other. Well, what was even more cumbersome and difficult was that there was a picture of that separation, and that picture was in the first century temple and the one that existed before that, but especially the one that was there in Jesus' day. Now, the picture you're seeing is a picture of a model temple in a model city of Jerusalem, outside the city of Jerusalem now. It's for tourists and others who want to see it. Temple there in this model is about, oh, probably that big. So you can get some sense of how the, the model looks. And the other, uh, other parts of the city in Jesus' day, the walls and everything, are reconstructed there in model form. What you don't see there is something that Paul is referring to in terms of them being far away, Gentiles. You're far away. Then in verse 14, he speaks about a dividing wall of hostility. Oh, this is amazing because on that wall that goes around the temple, and you can see it up there because it encloses the, the, the court of the Jews, and they were allowed to go in there, but the Gentiles weren't allowed to go in there. 
Historian Josephus tells us that there were 13 slabs of uh, stone on the outside of that wall, and, and each one of them repeated the same warning to the Gentiles, and that is, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Now, that's a welcome, Matt, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. come on in, but if you come in, you're going to die. That, that, that's the picture. And Paul would know exactly what that means because he had been accused of bringing a man by the name of Trophimus, a Gentile, inside that area. So people wanted to put him and Trophimus to death. So bottom line, distance between Jew and Gentile is reinforced anytime somebody even thinks about Judaism and the temple because of this wall that exists around there to keep the Gentiles out. It's reinforced. So they are very, very far apart. Now, add to that the human factor. And you know what it's like to have one group on top and one group on the bottom. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't thought about that before. Probably haven't thought about it before because you've been on the top most of the time. Yeah? You know what naturally happens when people are on the top. There is a tendency towards, um, I'm okay and, and I'm on the top because I really, you know, I'm humble about it, but I really deserve to be on the top. And those folks down there, well, you know, tough. They just didn't take the right steps. So that's where they are. I'm on top. That's just the natural order of things. And so there they are. So what do you end up with? You end up with pride on the top. You end up with resentment and animosity and hatred and everything else that's nasty and we don't want around us on the bottom. You know how that works because you see that in 21st century. I see that in the 21st century. I see jocks and geeks in high school. I guess they're still there. They were there when I was a kid. That's a long time ago. But I'll bet they're still there. I turn on the news and I find that there's constant warring between Sunni and Shia. And there's this picture in most of the countries in the Middle East, probably all of them, in which one of those groups is on the top and the other group is on the bottom. In many places around the world, I see this kind of uh, animosity and, and uh, distrust between uh, rich and poor. And the funny thing is, the, though we are in our places on the top, if we're on the top, not because we deserve it, but because we've gotten some breaks in life and maybe taken advantage of them, I grant you that, but we, we don't necessarily deserve it, but we come to think we do, and we come to think that they don't deserve it. Pride. On the one side, resentment on the other, and that's what you get. That's a real problem. You see it around the world today. You see it in churches sometimes where it's not supposed to be. What Paul is talking about is here's the ideal. Here's what God has done for us, and he's brought these two groups of people together, and he uses the Jews and the Gentiles, but you would use whatever group you want to use. He has brought us together, and he has said, I'm going to destroy the dividing wall of hostility, and I'm going to do it by the blood of my son, Jesus the Christ. It's the only way to do it. What we have is a division that is, that is uh, so deep within us that what has to take it away, the only thing that can take it away is something that's supernatural. It is, it is really uh, God intervening that can take away this barrier that exists between people on a natural basis for whatever reason, because of their skin color or their nationality or their language or their accent or, or their gender or you know what I mean? The only way, the only way that can be uh, taken away is, is supernaturally. So God does something supernatural and he breaks down the wall of hostility between 
Jew and Gentile, or black and white, or male and female, or, or, or you name it, whatever else divides people. So in place of hostility, uh, we have peace. Instead of being foreigners, we are children of one father. What God says is that the, the division between us is so natural that, that what we need is not a new suit of clothes. We need to be born all over again. What we need is not a Band-Aid. We need surgery. What we need is, is not, a, not a valve replaced in our heart. We need a new heart. And so God does it through the blood of his son. And so Paul uses some other words to describe what's happened. He says, you've been brought near. He has destroyed the barrier. He has uh, created in himself one new man instead of the two, thus making peace. He has brought us together. Now let me ask you, do you agree with that? Do you agree that what Paul is talking about here is bringing people together from the far reaches of the things that, that naturally push them apart, whatever those, whatever those distinctions are, he, he brings them together so that he, he can create unity, one family, one temple, uh, one kingdom under one master. That's, that's the picture of Ephesians 2. And I warn you that if you say yes, you've got to consider saying yes very carefully because I am convinced from what I look in the scriptures that he has brought us together to be together. Now you say, duh, that's of course he's brought us together to be together. Not so fast. Not so fast. What I'm saying is that he brought us together in reality, not just in theory. You've seen the, uh, <laughs> you've seen the cartoon, cartoon where Linus says, uh, uh, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Now, the, the version of that that is in the Christian world today is, I love the universal church. It's the local church I can't put up with. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in the universal church. It's a concept in Scripture, no doubt about it. It's all men and women of any generation who have followed after the living God in the last 21 centuries who would be followed after Jesus Christ, and they are the church. And that, that's a wonderful idea. I love that idea. I think that's true. But that doesn't mean anything until it comes down to the reality of the local church. That's where it has to find expression. And the reason why I say that from this passage is because Paul uses terms that, 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 that look like solid, real things that I can see. He talks about a, a family. We are part of one family. I can see that, yeah. And that has ramifications, doesn't it? We are a, a temple that's being built to his glory. I, I can see a temple, and I can imagine the implications of that. We are a kingdom that exists, local church, not just this amorphous picture of the universal church. That's a wonderful idea, but that's just not sufficient to capture what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a local church, about people together. Now, if I'm just thinking about those ideas in terms of theory, well, I can say, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. That's really great. But if I'm thinking about those in terms of reality, oh, it's, it's a different story, you know? The, the universal church is like Ilona and me, my wife Ilona and I living in a big house all alone. You know, we can wander around all we want. We don't bump into each other because we can go to different, different sides of the house and then we'll come back together when we want to and everything's fine and we live in this, this uh, Cinderella land. 
Now, the local church is like a lot of people living in a small house. You get the picture. Some years ago, I guess it was, I don't know, eight years ago, our uh, son Drew, uh, Huber and his wife Amy, our daughter, our son-in-law Drew, and, and uh, he's like a son, but our daughter Amy sold her condo. They had one child, uh, boy Austin, perfect little baby boy, my grandson, and uh, they sold their house. They sold their condo, and they bought a, a fixer-up house over in Warren, and uh, they said, we need to live someplace, and we said, well, come live with us. Well, then we found out what reality was like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we had to move things around in the house because they had to have rooms different, and, and so we moved stuff around the house. The TV ended up down in the, in the living room where we, we never watched it before. We had a separate TV room, but that became a bedroom. So then we had a crib, and we had to put that someplace, and all kinds of adjustments had to be made. Ilona had to give up the clicker on the TV. That was the hardest part of the whole thing, and, and drew one of that clicker, and they, just, they fought over that, and they bet over it and everything else. That was reality. Yeah. And because we didn't live in the universal uh, family idea, we lived in the, in the reality, the local family idea. It was fine. And sure, we bumped into each other. And of course, we, we, we uh, wish we had some time alone. And yeah, there was noise that we didn't want noise. And sure, all that. Yeah, gotcha. But boy, that was a rich and precious time. And I'm so glad that they moved in. And we will look back on that time for the rest of our lives with joy, even though it was not easy. Now, that's the way it is. You compare the universal church and the local church, and the local church is difficult and it's hard, and I understand that, and I get that. In fact, that's why there's a general impatience in our world about the local church, just like any other organization. A local church is, uh, is not on top of things all too often. I, I know that. I, I've been doing this for a long time. A local church just drops the ball all, all too often. I understand that. Since 1975, I have been trying to manage people's expectations of the local church because I'm a pastor, and that's what I do. But listen, bottom line, bottom line, you can choose your church. You can have one at home with your wife and your kids, or you can have one here, but you've got to have a church. And the one at home with your wife and kids isn't sufficient. Maybe it is with a few other families from your neighborhood. Not fighting home churches. Not, not fighting that at all. But I'm just saying. Somehow you have to be connected to other people and linked to other people, even in the midst of the difficulties that are involved in that. I can't dismiss the local church. Here's something I'm convinced of. Being together in a local church is a major part of following Jesus. Being together. And when I say together... I have a definition in mind. I, I mean together in terms of being linked together on a common mission to support each other, to grow together, uh, to say I'm sorry when I've, when I've hurt you, uh, to give forgiveness when you say you're sorry or even before you say you're sorry. It, it is to have some kind of structure. It is to be held accountable to each other and to leaders and leaders to people. It, that's what a local church is. It's not amorphous. It's not, it's not jelly. It's not jello. It's solid. It's real. It doesn't have to have a building. It doesn't have to have a lot of the things that we sometimes think of as church. But it does have that common function of being together and sharing with each other and being accountable to each other and having leaders to guide us in the midst of life. Why? <laughs> why? I mean, why, why does the New Testament know nothing about the solo Christian? I, you just aren't going to find it. It isn't there. It's not there. Yes, it speaks to individuals. Of course it does. 
But it's always speaking in the first century to individuals who are gathered together with other believers who are committed to each other, have a common force and a common direction. And I won't refine the definition any further. You know what I'm talking about. That's what the New Testament assumes. It is the basic underlying assumption of the New Testament that we will be tied together. Why? Why did God build it that way? Why did God make it that way? Let me give you two reasons and then I'll quit. It is one of God's best ways to shape me. That's why. We think life in the church ought to be different than life in the world around us. Yes or no? Yes and no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, of course it should be different most of the time. Uh, of course. I mean, we're people who say that we're seeking after Jesus together. We're people who say that we're trying to be kind and loving to each other like he was. We say that we are people who are, who are saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, help me do better next time. We, we say that, that's, that's what we say. And, and large amounts of the time we live it out. I've seen it over these years, 35 years in the pastoral ministry. I guess it's 35 or no, it's 40, excuse me, it's 40. I've seen it, I know it to be true. That's what I love about the church. But no, we won't be different at times. No, face it. It's real. We won't be. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And I'll step on your toes. Because you're a sinner. <laughs> you'll step on mine. And you'll step on hers. And you'll step on his. And that's the way it is. We are sinner saints. We're in process. We may be getting there faster than somebody else, but other times we're getting there slower than somebody else. So we've got the old man who's still in us, and the old woman who's still in us, fighting against the new man or woman who's still in us. And the day is going to come when Jesus will give us victory, to be sure. But boy, I tell you, I haven't seen it happen in this life in which we are perfect. The first person who is uh, perfect who comes into this church will be very, very disappointed. And the first person who's imperfect, who thinks this church is perfect, will be ultimately out the door unless they adjust that. That's why. Because I need you. Because I need to rub against you. I need to share the remote with you. And I need to give you the choice instead of me always taking the choice, demanding the color that I want on the walls. I can't do that. And in the process, what God does is he grows me up. And he grows you up. And he matures me. And he matures you. You say, how do you how do you deal with that, with all the stuff that goes on in the local church? Well, I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of it. And uh, <laughs> you may be thinking that I don't know much about it or that I haven't been on the bad end of it, but you'd be uh, dead wrong if you thought that. I have lost my ideal picture of the church from time to time because I've seen so much of the junk that goes on in the church. And hold on. I've lost my ideal of the church at times for a period of time because I have been the cause of the junk that goes on. Because I'm like everybody else. And I need forgiveness like anybody else. So why do I hang on to the church? Well, because I know that's why God is going to make me different. That's why. And, and the only way I can deal with that is I can, I can determine in my mind I'm going to take my eyes off the junk and I'm going to take my eyes off the failures of other people and, and my failures and, and I'm going to look to the promise of God that he's going to change us as we stick with it and as we hang in there. 
And, and I'm going to see the junk that arises from time to time and the mud that gets swirled up from the bottom of the river as it gets, goes along. I'm, I'm going to see that as the manure in the greenhouse of God to grow a new Peter, okay? And a new Betty and a new Bill and a new Joe and, and whatever your name is. That's why. Because it is one of God's best ways to create maturity in me. Second reason I'm persuaded uh, that God gave us the church and wants us to be committed to the church, the local church, is because it is one of God's best ways to prove his point. And what is God's point? Well, God's point is my son is alive. And men and women who will trust in my son will increasingly become more like him, and they will come together with an uncommon kind of decency and, 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 and commitment to each other and forgiveness and humility. And, and as they focus on my son together and what he wants to do in them, then, then the world will see that they love each other, and the world will say, wow, that's amazing. And that happens because of the church. You say, well, individuals become Christians, granted, yeah. And individuals bear witness. Oh, agreed. 100%. But think of what happens when you bear witness on the job and you can point back to your church where, where there's a temple growing to the glory of the living God, where there's a family that's learning how to love each other and where there's a kingdom values being lived out because the master is there. Oh, think how that's amplified. I think of the Verizon wireless advertisement that was on the, on the screen some years ago. The guy's out front and he's using his phone. <laughs> he's using his phone and you can trust that that phone's going to work because all the guys behind you, right? The techies. I can be convinced that what I'm saying to my friend who lives down the street and is going through hard times in the midst of his marriage is, is hey, don't listen just to me, but look at the folks who are back there. There's a family there. Yeah, we're dysfunctional at times. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> But, but there's something special there because God's bringing us together to an uncommon kind of loyalty to each other. And we were far apart, but now we're brought together and now we're a family and, and, and we're a kingdom and there's a king who's in charge of us and, and, and he is ruling us from day to day and his values are being expressed in, in ever-increasing sense as we walk with him. And there's this, there's this temple. This temple is being grown to the glory of God and, and, and he's living in us and that's my church, friends. So it's not just me, it's what he's doing with others as well. Potential is just hard to exaggerate. I was reading a magazine, and I've got a copy of a page in here about a woman in Cambodia who had lived through the, the Pol Pot regime with Khmer Rouge and, and then through the Vietnam, Vietnam conflict and all the problems that went, went on. You know something about that. It has some kids, no husband, she's living alone. She hardly has a dime, two dimes to rub together uh, in their coinage. But her story was about to change. And let me just read to you about her experience because I've seen this so many times. This one happens to be from Cambodia, but I've seen it in Basking Ridge and I've seen it in Bernardsville and I've seen it in New Providence. You know, it just happens all the time. Listen to this. Jesus came to my village when I was about to give up on life. Jesus came to my rescue, just like the story he told in Matthew 25. When asked to explain, Bong Ra said, I needed water for my vegetable garden, and the Christians dug three wells in my village. One was just 30 meters from my house. When my children were sick and I had no money for medicine, I took them to their weekly free clinics. My children got better. And not only that, these Jesus people sometimes gave me bags of rice just when I ran out of food. All my life, people have been cruel to me, even members of my own family. 
But these people were kind and gentle to me and my children. They did not even know me, but they welcomed me and accepted me for who I am. My children and I were complete strangers, but they made us their friends. And listen to how she ends her testimony. This is how I met Jesus. I fell in love with him through meeting his people. Yeah. That's what God intends to do at Renaissance. That's what God intends, to bring us together with all our differences, all our warts and pimples, all the, all the crazy stuff that goes on in our lives, to bring us together to become one family, to, to be a, a, a temple for his glory, to be a place where the values of the king are being lived out. And when they're not lived out, then we face it and we deal with it together. Church matters. Church matters. Take the steps you need to take in your church so that you can feed the others in your church and they can feed you and you can rub off on each other and you can learn to be the people of God that he intended you to be. Let me pray with you, please. Father God, you know what needs to be done in these moments as we think about church matters. There may be folks from other good churches, Lord, and, and they need to invest there as they've done in the past. Or they, people who are here this morning may need to invest here at uh, Renaissance, need to pick up the volunteer uh, idea and say, I'm going to serve, I'm going to do something, I'm going to contribute, I'm going to give, I'm going to tithe, I'm going to be a part of the family so that I can grow. I don't want to be alone anymore. I don't want to be self-sufficient because I'm not. I want to be what you've called me to be. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. God bless.